Hello, I'm Matthew Bradbury, and welcome to The Beverage Report, a student-led podcast ran out of the London School of Economics, Department of Economics. So today, we sit down and discuss with Professor Sir Tim Besley about COVID-19 and policy. Tim Besley is the Arthur Lewis Professor of Development Economics at the LSE. And then also he has a lot of experience having done policy stuff. So, for example, he's a commissioner of the National Infrastructure Commission and um, was also a member of the Monetary Policy Committee. So we start by looking at Tim's experience in the policy world and we talk through you know, what good policy looks like, how it's made, and then what role academics have to play in that. We then discuss this in light of the COVID crisis because Professor Besley is on Delve, which I mispronounce as Dell throughout the rest of this recording. And basically what Delve is, is it's the part of the Royal Society which reports to SAGE, which reports to the Cabinet Office. Um, so we talk through Professor Besley's experience there. And then finally, we move on to discuss Professor Besley's work as a development economics professor by talking through how COVID faces challenges to the developing world and then how Professor Besley expects different countries will be able to respond to those with the institutions that they do or do not have in place. So, I mean, first off, how are you coping with life in self-isolation? Have you found the change? Parts of it are, are not so different for academics because we were always used to work, working in a fairly self-contained way on our research and being in contact with our collaborators. Um, so to that extent, it, it, it's probably less of a shock to, to academics than it is to many others. That said, there's the whole side, the teaching side and the social interaction side, which everyone else is coping with. And, uh, you know, I think um, we all miss uh, each other's company, but... Uh, mediums like Zoom have made a huge difference. And uh, I started off, like I'm sure most people did, as very nervous of using a medium like this. But suddenly I've uh, spent so much time on it. It's it's just second nature now to be talking to people uh, this way. So looking at your career, you're very much a polymath, as in you've done your fair share of policy work, served on the Monetary Policy Committee, written papers with David Cameron. You're also a distinguished academic. You teach undergrads. So which bit of that do you enjoy the most? What's the When you look at your diary, which bit do you look forward to? Well, to some extent, it's the full package because, uh, as you pointed out, like uh, you, you, you call me a polymath. Um, uh, uh, others would say I have a short attention span. Um, you, know, <laughs> you, you can you can always put it either way. But the the key thing is the package. I mean, I I love being an, an academic because it does give you the freedom to do the many different things you just described. On any given day, you know, if I'm teaching a class, I'm looking forward to that. But at some level, it's when you look at the joins between those parts, because I, I, I try as far as possible to keep um, some kind of uh, se- seamless joins between. So when I teach, I love to bring into my teaching, uh, at least anecdotally, some of the things that are going on in policy or some of the things that are going on in my research. So, so I try as much as I can to not think of these as kind of separate spheres that don't intersect, but but it's the whole bringing together of the opportunities you get to, to do all of those things that you describe. When you were appointed to the MPC, your position as a man who stands in a lot of spheres was pointed at in that the Treasury Select Committee said that they thought there was an advantage in bringing a microeconomist to the team because the viewpoint would add different value. I mean, looking back on that time now, do you think there was value that you brought to the MPC as the resident microeconomist? I mean, for sure. I mean, I don't think I was the only uh, microeconomist there at the time, but I've always felt there's a bit of a false dichotomy between microeconomics and macroeconomics. And I think many, many macroeconomists 
uh, would agree, meaning that we look at the economy from different perspectives. And sometimes looking at individual behavior or market behavior gives an insight into aggregate behavior. So, you know, the question is, what can you usefully contribute to a discussion about something that's going on in the economy at the time? At the end of the day, you know, we have skills uh, as economists around the analysis of data and interpretation of data. We have skills around formulating and understanding theory and the narratives that can come from theory. And it's just a case of, you know, being able to do whatever you, you can do and to, to some extent those skills are portable. Um, what's needed perhaps more than anything else if you're involved in policy uh, as an academic at least is to have some independent critical thinking that comes from the academic tools you bring and your capacity to know perhaps about data analysis or, or, or theory in a slightly different way to people whose career experience is different. So there's this quote from Greg Mankiw in 2006 where he says, the sad truth is that macroeconomic research of the past three decades has only had a minor impact on the practical analysis, monetary or fiscal policy. So Greg Mankiw was a cool guy. He chaired the Council of Economic Advisors under George Bush. So it's quite surprising. Well, I mean, I found it quite surprising to hear him come out and say this. But you're someone who, you are an academic and you are in the policy sphere. As well, you work on Dell, which um, hopefully you could tell us a bit more about, because I think it's very interesting, where you provide academic input to the government coronavirus response. So what do you think of that Q quote? How much of an impact has there been of research onto policy? I, I would say a very large amount, but I, th- I think you have to look at it in the right way. I mean, what I don't, what some academics look for is an, uh, a very direct link with a specific piece of research and a specific outcome. And I think, you know, there will be cases, and there even are examples, I think, of cases where the link is very linear, meaning that, you know, there's a piece of research, it shifted opinion, and some kind of policy response but or, or change in the, in the world. But that actually, I don't think, is, the, is, is mostly the right way to think about it. What academic research gives you is a kind of framework in, through which to look at issues in in a uh, in, in an interesting way or an insightful way, and uh, and those uh, the, the the way we we do that has changed. It's changed even during my career uh, in the way we bring, say, political economy into our thinking, which really wasn't true when I was taught economics as an undergraduate. When I was an undergraduate and a graduate student. Um, uh, I, that the kind of political economy perspective was almost entirely absent. We've seen behavioral economics come in as a, giving us new insights into the way people behave. In an earlier era, there was bringing information economics, adverse selection, moral hazard. We're always adding to and refining the framework that we use for studying economic issues. And that framework is incredibly powerful and important in setting the kind of agenda for policy analysis. Then equally is how we then incorporate insights from data through that framework. And again, I don't think it's about saying, here's a specific study, it had this or that impact. Setting the agenda through the availability of data and the insights that data give us, I think does change and frame our perspectives on policy. And I think it is going to big time in the episode that we're currently experiencing. Could you talk a bit more about that, um, specifically on your work with Dell? Like, what is Dell? What do you do? And how is policy, as you say, impacting what we're currently experiencing? So what Dell is trying to uh, uh, to do is to bring together a, an interdisciplinary group to inform um, some of the policy decisions being made in SAGE, which is the main strategic body. It's a, it was 
created as an umbrella by the Royal Society and its epidemiologists, um, statisticians, medics, uh, and uh, economists now working together to try and um, put together reports on, on strategically important issues, uh, whether it's whether people should wear face masks or what kind of regime for testing, tracing, and isolation we should have, um, what are the different options uh, for um, opening up the economy, what are the public health implications and the economic implications. So you need a broad range of disciplines to contribute together for that to be for policymaking to to be effective and 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 that's so i've been involved in that in the last i guess three or four weeks um uh, on some of the specific um issues that delve is is talking about so so looking at looking at that research what stuff what stuff do you think is the most interesting what do you kind of glance at and um you know piques your interest the most so, so I've um, I've got quite interested in epidemiological models, some of the thinking of public health specialists, because if you think about the challenge we're currently facing, um, um, the shock itself, it, the origins, of course, are in a public health issue. But because of the need to respond to this, in particular, by locking down parts of the economy, um, it becomes very quickly the public health shock becomes an economic shock. So what I've got interested in is kind of blending insights from economics about how do you do this to create least economic damage and uh, at the same time as fulfilling the public health imperative. And it's got me uh, thinking about how one joins insights from the public health side. Uh, and of course, there have always been people working on issues like um, the uh, rolling out vaccination programs, um, uh, epidemiological models of disease progression you know, during things like the SARS outbreak or Ebola. Some economists did get involved in analyzing those issues, but, but I think it's brought home to me a whole series of new joins between economics and public health that I was really aware of before the crisis came along. Okay, so moving from that then to a discussion more of your work as the Development Economics Chair. First question, what is political economy? So political economy for me is when we're thinking about good government policy, so I'm kind of almost approaching it in a rather normative way when I say that. It's about um, how do we get good economic policy as opposed to um, thinking purely about policy design. So, you know, I... I, I in, in, in a previous life before I, if you like, discovered political economy, I was very interested in policy design, which is, uh, you know, what, if we care about an income transfer scheme, what components would that have? If I care about designing a tax scheme, what would be the tax rates? What political economy does is go beyond that and say, well, if, if, that, if, if good policy is going to happen, we have to think the, about the structures in which policy is determined and delivered. So it has, I guess, two components. The delivery of policy, and that means studying the incentives of those who uh, are, are asked to deliver policy, be they the private sector um, or, or um, uh, government bureaucrats or whatever you're, you're, you're using as your vehicle for delivery. And then at a sort of, high, sort of higher level, the political process, um, whatever it is, uh, whether it's the role of elections or the media or whatever, determines the policies that we actually uh, see implemented. And uh, then one wants to study how differences in political structures or incentive structures 
uh, feed into um, different kinds of policy environments. And, and political economy is about understanding that. So it's been suggested that the current pandemic could be a way of changing the policy environments. And the term you get a lot is it's a critical juncture, which might cause redistributive effects similar to those by wars, um, which where you historically see a significant long run increase in public spending as percentage of GDP. What do you think of this idea that the pandemic will be a critical juncture and which direction do you see it going? It's a very credible thing to believe, but I, I know many people who think it's being overplayed. Uh, and so I'm trying to say somewhat balanced on, on this. Uh, and and, and you know, we will find out in, in due course. But let me tell you why I think it could be a critical juncture, because I think there are features of this where that view is, is, is really quite credible. What, one, I think, is um, what you might call the broad nature of the social contract. I mean, many, many people were concerned about issues um, around uh, uh, social protection in general, you know, people on zero hours contracts would be an example of that. Generally, you know, were we um, delivering health and social care in, in a way we wanted to? Um, were we um, uh, were we thinking about a society in which um, uh, we were looking after the vulnerable? All of those issues were on the agenda and on the table before the crisis. But many of those things have been shown in, thrown into sharp relief because of the crisis that we will eventually learn that the distributional impact of this crisis is uh, is very particular in who it hits and how it hits them, and particularly who it is who's going to bear the long-term uh, cost of the of the crisis. Uh, and, and it's hard for me to believe that, um, that there will not be some transformative effect on, uh, on, on the way society perceives its obligations to uh, not just the vulnerable citizens, but how citizens themselves perceive their obligations to others. And in that sense, it is going to be or could be something akin to what happens in, 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 in a period following a war, which, are, which often reminds people very much about who's dependent on whom and why, um, because you can't fight a war without, in a sense, a rather collective effort um, I mean, of course, there are people at the front line who are fighting as soldiers and, and the rest of it. But equally, the citizens that at home make enormous sacrifices in the period of war. So, so I think those things have the potential to be quite transformative. The other area which I would flag up too um, uh, is thinking about the nature of the, the state, um, to, particularly in regard to how centralized or decentralized it is. Um, we're only just beginning to see something interesting unfolding in the fact that the devolved nations are pursuing somewhat different routes to, um, to, to Westminster. I think it's easier to exaggerate the differences, but there are differences. Um, but, but it raises a slightly larger question for, um, for, for those of us in England to realize that, you know, as the, as the majority nation within a union, we have very little decentralization in our country. Uh, uh, I think someone like Sadiq Khan, the, the mayor of London, is is conspicuous by his absence uh, because he really does not, not have any authoritative role to play in uh, in the response to the virus. It's pretty much under the aegis of the of the UK government, but, but I'm sure people who live in West Midlands or in in, in the Northwest or or wherever else in the UK are probably getting a similar sense that um, uh, this is all being handled by a bunch of guys in 10 Downing Street um, 
And, uh, and I think there might be wider questions therefore asked about how we want to relocate the locus of power in society. Do, do, do we look at the Scottish example and say, well, maybe a sort of community of six million people makes more sense than a community of 50 odd million as a basis for making uh, key government decisions. I mean, London, Greater London has a population bigger than the population of Scotland, uh, just to put it in sharp relief. So I think there could also be questions around governance um, that that will eventually start to simmer, at least. Maybe they won't have really result in changes. But as we come out of this, we're going to need an awful lot of effective government to restore the economy. And is that going to be best run from a single kind of authoritative top-down Westminster system rather than starting to empower um, cities and, and regions? Uh, I, I personally think we've got to have that conversation. So talking about how the institutional setup changes the effectiveness of a response, you've often defended claims that countries without strong executive constraints um, with presidential systems and the like have higher corruption, volatility and growth rates. But when we look at the coronavirus crisis, countries like um, Singapore and China have been very successful. So what is it that makes these autocracies work? And then why specifically in a time of crisis do they really shine? Good question. So there's the wider issue and the narrow issue. The, the wider issue, which is something I got interested in uh, a few years back and I'm still interested in, is the sort of um, what you might call successful autocracies. Um, and, and the main thing to observe is uh, that what autocracy seems to do in terms of, I think economic performance is clearest, but it, it, it thinks across a range of different policies is to have very variable performance. So it's true that uh, at one end of the growth experience in the last 30 years will always be China with very strong sustained growth. But uh, for every autocracy like China, there's uh, equally many autocracies that preside over periods of really quite um, dramatic economic decline. That autocracy is a kind of system that is, exposes their citizens to many more risks of bad governance. That may mean you end up on the upside, but equally you may end up on the downside. So I've always argued the better way to think about the issue is instead of looking at the average performance, to look at the distribution of performance and think where you may end up in that distribution. So that's kind of the broader issue. And I, 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 I've sort of tried to argue that, that the real argument for dem democracy is not some improved average performance, which is actually not even there in most data, but actually it's, it's a much more resilience-based argument. Uh, and um, uh, if we apply that thinking to the, um, to the COVID outbreak, it's kind of... It, on the one hand, it plays out exactly as I would expect, namely that you know China, um, with its capacity to lock down a whole city in a rather authoritarian way that we would never dream of uh, doing in the UK, um, can contain a virus with that um, at the cost of uh, what it does all the time, which is limitations on freedoms. Um, and, it, and it decides to make a particular trade-off between freedom and efficiency in that that context, and, and it perhaps isn't so surprising that in some extreme conditions um, that can have uh, can have uh, benefits. But equally, I'd say you've got to look at autocracy in the round in the context of this, uh, and not just look at the 
the examples that have done well. And uh, one thing, actually, in some research I'm currently doing, it's very noticeable that if you look at media freedom as a particular dimension of institutions, that countries um, with low media freedom appear to misreport, be misreporting deaths on quite a high scale. So then, first of all, not telling their citizens what's really going on in those countries. Second of all, it looks like government responsiveness is much higher in countries with free media compared to countries without free media. Now, free media, sense of media, don't line up perfectly on the autocracy or democracy dimension, but they're obviously related dimensions. But my, my, my point more generally is, um, you know, this will be handled much worse on average, I predict, in the sense of media countries, in the countries with little accountable government. And moreover, it's kind of worse than that too. I think it will be used as a kind of cloak by some of the governments, the repressive governments around the world to strengthen the repressiveness of the regime on the back of the argument they need to fight the pandemic. So, so I think uh, just saying, well, you know, China's got you know three deaths per million, and we have four hundred deaths per million. Therefore, shouldn't we be like China? I just don't buy that argument at all. Um, uh, even though, uh, as I say, in specific dimensions, you can you can point out where um, some authoritarian governments have succeeded where we couldn't succeed. Globally, perhaps the best performing nations are South Korea and Taiwan. Uh, both of which are also noticed for their successful and speedy transition from autocracy to democracy. Do you think there's anything in that? The fact that they were previously dictatorships and then kind of 30 years later are very liberal democracies. Do you think that educates their success when it comes to dealing with coronavirus? Well, I, I, I'm not sure I would pin it on that specifically. I mean, the, the answer is, and I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, that the jury is very much out on what it is that's led to success or, or lack thereof in combating the crisis, uh, the coronavirus. So, so I, I think we're all flying a little blind when we're trying to attribute it to this, that, or the other. I think one one factor that I'm be, I'm personally becoming more convinced by as evidence comes in is simple things like fa- wearing of face masks in critical places. There's been a, a much longer tradition of doing that already in Asia compared to uh, the, we- the Western economies. I don't think I'd be surprised if we could pin the difference in performance on something as simple as that. But it does link back to your theme because um, one issue around uh, um, a free society is we find it very hard to issue edicts like wear face masks. Uh, and then to get high levels of compliance as a suspicion even. Indeed, I would regard it as a healthy suspicion of advice from government uh, on a variety of uh, measures, which can be an inhibiting factor when you're trying to fight uh, uh, something like the the virus. And it may be true that a degree of compliance with government is is in, in a way a hangover from a different cultural context where government was more authoritarian and the authoritarianism was more or less accepted. And therefore, it may make it easier to make those kinds of um, arguments to your citizens and to get high levels of, of compliance. But, but you know, I think, um, I think it's really too early to be able to start dissecting the specific dimensions on which success and failure has been uh, defined um, before, before we really know um, w- what it was about our response that could have been improved in hindsight. 
uh, here in the UK. So now to look at the developing world more broadly, a question submitted by um, Alexis, who is an offer holder for BSE Econ, asked, how does the pandemic change the trajectory of developing world nations? And then I'd add in, compared to developed, what policies do you think can be used by the developing world to fight this threat? And then how does that differ from what you might see in the UK or Germany? Well, so so two or three things to say on that. What, one is... Um, Whatever happens policy-wise in the developing world, it has to be bespoke and targeted to the specific circumstances of the developing world. So issuing a lockdown of the kind that we in the UK issued because we had the fiscal capacity and, and which allowed us to raise large amounts of debt, roughly probably will be at least 10% of GDP, to start a furlough program for people who couldn't work because of the lockdown is simply not a policy option for many countries. And it's not just a financial issue. I mean, finance obviously is important, but it's also a, an issue about being able to design and implement such a scheme. If you're in an economy where instead of, uh, you know, we have about 5 million out of a workforce of 30 million who are um, self-employed in the UK, you know, that ratio is going to look exactly the opposite in most developing countries. So, and, and, and it's much harder to target informal workers. You haven't got the systems of social protection. So it, you know, even if someone gave you 10% of GDP to play with to do that, you just wouldn't be able to do it as effectively. So whatever solutions are taken, they have to be bespoke and recognize the circumstances. Um, so so uh, the biggest issue at the moment for most developing countries, I would say even probably all, um, is not the scale of infection, which is considerably lower than the scale of infection we've, we've had in Western Europe, but the economic shock that has partially been created, indeed you know, significantly been created by the reaction of the economies in the West to the, um, to the pandemic, namely that they've, um, they've uh, um, stopped buying imports from uh, many of these countries, the commodity price shock, uh, so that there's a kind of knock-on shock. And therefore, um, the mechanisms that we need to use to improve the resilience of the developing world to stop it and undoing many of the gains that some of them have had in the last, um, uh, say, 20 years, is to have an international response that tries to support attempts to keep those economies afloat during the period while the West is trying to get to terms with its own economic shock. So that means scaling up the capacity of places like the IMF and the World Bank and uh, perhaps aid agencies more generally to come uh, to, to provide targeted support that is useful to, to, to each economy in the way it needs to have that use. So, so it's no good saying there's a policy and we need to apply it everywhere. It's got to be bespoke and, and, and effective in each economy uh, according to the circumstances that it faces. Um, so this links into a question submitted by Shrishti, another BSE Econ offer holder. This is recently the IMF has um, created a short-term liquidity line in order to kind of stave off a global financial crisis. So do you think that this is necessary or what do you think is necessary in terms of an, uh, an international response? Is this IMF thing going far enough? Uh, what more would you suggest? And then also tying into something something else um sinjana another offer holder talks about how there's always an issue of corruption when dealing with large-scale development aid to the developing world so how do we how do you square this circle from needing to 
provide more support, but also needing to stave off corruption, specifically when coronavirus is likely to exacerbate that corruption? Yeah, so, so on the first question and the creation of liquidity, clearly very important what the IMF's done, but nobody should be under any illusions that this is a kind of panacea. Um, if, if these are countries with weak state capacity and weak structures, um, then it's not, because as I said earlier, it's not really an issue of resource. They need much more fundamental support to deliver support, to, to, to be able to deliver support to the people whose livelihoods are being hit by this. So, so uh, enhancing liquidity is, not, is, is, is a part of that, but it's by far and away not um, going to deal with the, the, the issue in the round. Um, of course, uh, and, and, and the question quite rightly points out that one of the features of the environment which you operate in in many countries, particularly weak and fragile states, is high levels of corruption. And, uh, um, and, and it does create a dilemma because uh, uh, very often of any amount of support you want to give on a specific program, the reality is that part of that support could be siphoned off in, in, in the form of corruption. And, it, and, and you know, one thing to do is to say, therefore, we should take a hard stance and, uh, and, and withdraw our support pending the capacity to, uh, to um, uh, deal with that problem. But I think in, in a humanitarian context, um, the burden of uh, the burden of proof shifts. I mean, if we're talking about a situation in which people are going to be left destitute, and and development gains have been uh, reversed, which have taken place, uh, many gains which which have been um, you know, 20, twenty year gains in some cases. I think we have to get more pragmatic, um, e even though we've got to be mindful of the fact that if we're going to behave that way. In the short term, we, we can't take our eye off the ball. These are fundamental problems that still need tackling. Um, what we've not been good at in the past, and this is something we talked about in our Fragile States Commission report, is making that transition from what you might call human humanitarian necessity or even just ending a civil war or dealing with those very dramatic uh, situations that some countries face to getting back to a stable path of progress thereafter. Um, so, you know, if you look at the De Democratic Republic of Congo, it's had uh, peacekeeping troops there um, for getting on, I mean, perhaps it's more than 15 years now, for a very long time, uh, which were meant to be a temporary measure to secure um, the economy and to secure the society. So we've really got to remember that, that you know, the, the, the transition away from purely humanitarian or emergency interventions uh, has, has to happen with a very clear plan of the need to deal with those underlying and fundamental issues that are holding back the economies. Perfect. Last two questions. Um, so a lot of stuff's happened in the last 15 years when it comes to interesting economics. What are the kind of PhD theses you're waiting to be written? And what type of things do you want to read? What are the, what's the big wholesale research you think is going to be a, you know, interesting for you as a professor to flick through in a couple of years' time? Well, I mean, of course, we're, we're all biased from, uh, when you ask a professor that question, from the kind of things that are, 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 they're preoccupied. But I think in the space that, that I'm most interested in, which is economic policy um, and political economy, um, I'm looking forward to, to really good studies that, that take um, 
broader considerations about human motivation, things that have come through in behavioral economics, but I think is, is wider than that. Understanding the role of social norms and shifting social norms, understanding the way you create more pro-socially motivated societies where people care about each other rather than just pursuing their own individual interest. That, that, that understanding those, those things is really fundamental. I mean, I think some of that will come with what's been a very exciting research agenda, um, looking at evidence from RCTs and, in, in the field and, and designing them to give insight in, into those things. It won't only come from that because often it's hard to get those big, decisive societal shifts that we often need. But I think though I'm looking forward to picking up more research papers, reading more theses where I think, yeah, a piece of that agenda has been addressed here. Uh, and, we, and we have more insights into how we make those really transformational changes in society um, that, that have long lasting benefits to communities or to countries or whatever unit of analysis you want to look at. And final question, what gives you hope? I'm eternally optimistic about both the world, but but also as an economist, our capacity to analyze things to make improvements in the way the world works. You know, I, I think out of the coronavirus, which is a grisly and grim um, backdrop, I think many new ideas about how to uh, change society, the world, and the economy are, are, will come out, and um, and we have we meaning societies, uh, not just uh, economists, have the, the opportunity to, to make those changes. And what gives me hope is that many, many people uh, out there are thinking about great ideas for making the world better and, uh, and that we, we, will, uh, we will continue to make progress even though there are these uh, periods like now where you know, we despair of some of the things that are going on. Professor Sir Tim Besley, thank you for your time. And to you, the listener, we thank you for listening and we hope you tune in again next time.